If you have your Bibles open still to the book of Exodus, I'm going to direct our attention again to these words beginning at verse 6. If you were to hear the words as you do in the Bible, the words holy, 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 and you were to ask yourself the question, I wonder what that means. What is it? I mean, I know the words, but what does it actually mean? These words explain what it means, what God's holiness is, what his perfection is declared to us. Now, notice I didn't say that, that we find what we would want if we were to ask for a perfect God. <laughs> what would your perfect God look like? Uh, God help us and save us from that God, the God that I would declare to be perfect for me. No, the scripture gives us something far more than our own idea of what would make God perfect. And that's exactly what this text is, is a revelation of God's holiness in all of his perfections. And that's why it also is the present glory of Christ. Verse 6 says this, The Lord passed before him, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Sounds good so far, right? Sounds like a good greeting card, something you put on your wall. And it is, but it goes on. By no means clear who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Lord, help us to grasp your words to us, such precious words, in a way that doesn't merely stay in history, but helps us to see Christ. Amen. Being saved by Christ is a wondrous thing. I hope you know that wonder. Being kept by Christ also is a precious thing. I hope you know that also. Not only to be saved by Christ, but to be kept by Christ. Kept even in these days, even in these seasons of life, where there is such tremendous fear, such tremendous anxiety, such real calamity, uh, in the world all around, of, uh, around us, to be kept by him. The question is how? And it has to do with his glory. It has to do with the glory that, that Christ has in us and our ability to see it and submit to it. But put very simply, uh, Christ holds us by becoming bigger to us. He becomes bigger to us and, and he shows us, as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 4, he says he by looking in the face of Christ, we see the very glory of God. So the purpose of these next five, six weeks, as we approach soon an Advent and a Christmas season, is not merely to trot out old stories and songs about Jesus for tradition's sake, because, well, it is that time of year. The goal and the prayer is that our Lord's grip on us would grow. And we need that grip on us. That our Lord's grip upon us would grow as we expound the glory 
that we see in him. And it is a particular kind of glory. It is a peculiar glory. It is of a, of a glory of a, of a particular nature that God ascribes to him. And the glory that God ascribes to him is expounded in this particular text. And so that's why we've chosen it as kind of a, a flagship anchor text that we're going to be in every single week for the next five to six weeks and work our way through it slowly. This Old Testament text is significant because it declares to us that kind of glory that Christ has. It is a text that shows the love of God, but it also shows the justice of God being true, equally true, at the same time as is the love of God, which is exactly the glory that Jesus possesses to deliver to us the mercy of God, the compassion of God, the kindness of God, without ever setting aside the perfections of God, which includes the justice of God. That is that particular kind of glory that Jesus possesses. So this is the main point that I would like to get across this morning. If you don't take anything else home with you, would you please... Try to get this one thing, that the glory of the Lord's name that is proclaimed here to Moses is the same glory that is veiled in the flesh of Jesus. In other words, the glory of Christ is not that he would have something that we require of him or that we demand of him. The glory of Christ is that he has what God requires of him. That's the glory of Christ. Not what, what we would say, in order for Christ to be beautiful to me, this is what he must possess. Rather, it's what God says he must possess that he has, what God demands of him, what God requires the fulfillment of is exactly the glory that Jesus possesses. And so this text is significant because it shows very clearly what God's holiness requires of Christ in order to reconcile us to God. This is important because we often have our own ideas of what makes Christ beautiful, what it is that makes Christ glorious. So when we look in the face of Jesus to see the glory of God, what we often want to see is ourselves being reflected back as happy people, as affirmed people, as fulfilled people. And we wonder why the glory of God is so dim. And people talk about the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And we don't really understand what they're talking about. Because there's a disconnect between the glory that we're looking for, what we would want of Christ, and the glory that God would want of his son. That disconnect is a significant word right now in our world, isn't it? Disconnected uh, in so many different ways people feel disconnected. But a disconnect between us and our expectations of Christ and God's demands upon Christ is a disconnect of the most serious kind. When our Lord was baptized by 
John, and he ascended out of the water. And the voice was heard, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. This is the significance of, of those words, is that I am pleased. I am the one who must be pleased. And I am the one who am pleased with, with this Son. This is my Son with whom I am very pleased. It doesn't say, this is my Son, and I think you're really going to like Him. This is my Son, and I, I really hope that He does all that, that you want for, for you. It says, this is my Son, and I am, <laughs> I am well pleased with Him. And the significance of that is that the pleasure that God has in the Son and He's pleased with Him is the same pleasure that can be passed on to us, which is the miracle of grace. Because if you're like me and you know what's going on inside your own head, you think, no, that's impossible. There can be no pleasure from a holy God if he can really see what's going on in me. And that's exactly the, the point of grace. Is that the pleasure of God is ours. Not through our works. Not through us to be able to be better than what they were that we read in the stories of the Bible. But through faith. Through belief through accepting all that Christ has done for us. That is the glory of Christ. Let me explain. A baker walks into a mechanic shop. This isn't a joke. But a baker walks into a mechanic shop looking for work. It's a story of disconnect. And the mechanic, not knowing anything about the person, says, do you have any skills? Oh yes, I have skills. Do you have experience? Oh yeah, I got lots of experience. Do you have certificates to prove that you're trained? Oh yeah, I got lots of certificates on my wall proving that I, I am trained. But he's a baker. And he's in a mechanic shop. So there is a, a disconnect between what is demanded of the job and what the person is able to do. And so, so with us, there's often a disconnect with us and the glory of Christ. When we expect Christ to do what we want, when in reality His glory is to be what God requires. And so this is where we're going to spend some time in expounding all the glories, the present glories of Christ that are revealed in this Old Testament text. Very briefly, I'm going to work through the context and, and some of the ways that it shows the future of Israel and then deal with that unresolved tension. Perhaps you felt it even as I read the text and where, where I paused, that, that, that tension that exists there. Well, is God can't figure out what he wants to do? Is he that kind of God who acts one way sometimes and then acts another way in other times? and deal with that tension that is naturally there in the text. But first of all, the context, which is a very rich context. It has to do with where Israel is and how they got there in the first place and all of the activities that are transpiring uh, right as these words are being delivered. The location is Mount Sinai, where God has assembled the people 
that he has delivered from slavery in Egypt in order to impart to them his very words of promise. I'm, I hope you're familiar with, with the stories of God coming down into Egypt and hearing the groans of his people and, and showing his power over Pharaoh and all of the idols and the gods of Egypt and delivering his people out of that land. And now here they are on this mountain. But let me just point out one significant thing about how they got there. They did not fetch their God there. God brought them there. They did not carry their God there. God carried them there. They did not bring their God to the mountain. Their God brought them to the mountain. And it's a very significant difference between this nation and their God and other nations and their gods. If you like satire, I would encourage you to read some of the Old Testament prophecies that where, for example, Jeremiah 10 or Isaiah chapter 46, where the prophets describe the activity of making idols, taking a piece of wood, with some of it you, you use to burn and heat yourself and heat your homes and cook your food, and then another piece, you make an idol of it and you bow down and worship it and say, you have made me. And the difference with this God is that they have not made this God. This God has made them. And all of the other nations of the world to get to this mountain with their God, they would have to put their God in an ox cart and they would have to carry their God in, to the mountain in order for their God to get there. That's the only way that they could worship with their God somewhere. Jeremiah chapter 10 says this, their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. They cannot speak and they have to be carried everywhere they go, for they cannot walk. <laughs> Isaiah 46, which is a, a wonderful text about how God carries his people. He says, even to your gray hairs, I am the one who carries you. In other words, you don't carry me. <laughs> I'm not an idol. You don't carry me around. You don't put me in your pocket. I carry you, even to your gray hairs. Hairs, and Isaiah says that they lift their idols onto their shoulders to set it in its place and it cannot move. Praise the Lord for a living God. I wonder in the story of David, remember in, in the story of David when the ark has been taken out of Israel and it's being brought back from a Philistine city into Jerusalem? Do you remember the story where one of David's servants, the ox cart, the cart is carrying the ark of God and the oxen stumble and the ark goes like this and a man puts his hand out to steady the ark. Do you remember what happened? And David was angry with the Lord because the Lord struck that servant dead. And in reading through the prophets, I, I, I wonder in my own imagination if the, if the message there was, who do you think I am? Do you think I'm a God that you put in your ox cart and carry around with you everywhere you go? I am the living God. I carry you. You don't carry me. And what is transpiring on this mountain, having got there by their God, is incredible picture of unfaithfulness, of infidelity that the prophets would now, through the scriptures, go on to describe with the vocabulary of sexual 
unfaithfulness, of harlotry, of whoredom, of Moses is on the mountain receiving the very words of God, expressing his kindness and his love and his compassion to this people that he's brought to this mountain in order to make a promise with them, to enter into covenant with them, while simultaneously at the bottom of the mountain, the people have taken off their jewelry that they received as they left Egypt and cast it into the form of an idol, a golden calf, and are bowing down and worshiping it. It's remarkable. In other words, as as you read the text of Exodus chapter 24, speaking of God's kindness and then saying, and and I will not hold them guiltless to the third and fourth generation, those words are actually literally being lived out as as the words are being said on the mountain. It's amazing. That's the context. And there is also an ominous future. There is in the text some clear foreshadowing, isn't there? Of how Israel would do as far as entering into covenant with God. When God says, I will be a merciful God, but I will also bring upon you the guilt of your iniquities, that pretty much anticipates the future of Israel. Over and over again, God's people as 2 Kings 17 is described as they came into the land. Any leafy tree was good enough for you to set up under. Any hill was good enough for you uh, to set up your idols upon. In Daniel chapter 9, when Daniel stops to pray, and that wonderful intercessory prayer of Daniel is recorded, as other prayers of Old Testament saints. It begins with the litany of God's faithfulness and their unfaithfulness, acknowledging that God's uh, anger with the nation was indeed just because they have been an unfaithful people as Israel repeated this same kind of infidelity and spiritual adultery over and over and over again. And you say, well, why? Why was it that way? What, what was in these people and why are we different? Which is a very significant question that the gospel has to address. Ezekiel chapter 20 is a very explicit description of how this came about in the people of Israel. He says, in, in, the, in, the, in the land of Egypt, you not only suffered the weight of slavery, you also suffered with the spirit of idolatry, which you've brought up out of the land with you. You became idol worshipers in the land of Egypt, and it has come up out of the land with you, a spirit of idolatry. Psalm 135 verse 18 says, something so significant that I have paused on over the years so many times. It says that those who worship idols become like them. Become like them. Do you know what idols are like? Idols are stupid. Idols can't see anything. Idols have no sense. They don't have any ears. They can't hear anything. And that's what, that's what 
people are like when they worship idols is they become like them. They, they can't hear the words of God. They can't see the beauty of Christ. They have no feet to carry them anywhere in the paths of God. They had cravings. Cravings that they wanted satisfied. They had insecurities. They wanted to be normal, which is, I think, a very relevant temptation. They wanted to be like the nations around them. They, they didn't want to stand out. They just they wanted to fit in. They wanted to be like the people around them. They wanted to be normal. That's why they asked for a king over them instead of God being as their king because they wanted to look like the nations around them. And they were filled with an insecurity of belonging to God only and all of the implications that that would bring. And all of the prophets that would come through the ages as servants of God to prosecute the people, to lift the law before them, not with their own ideas, but with the law of God, to prosecute them for their disregard of God's law and calling down upon them God's just response to their infidelity. And yet God never forsakes his people. Even in the text that we've read this morning from Exodus 34, there's a, a wonderful foreshadowing not only of Israel's infidelity, but of the triumph of the mercy of God. Yes, I will bring in, uh, judgment on the iniquities for the third and fourth generation, but on a thousand generations, I will bring mercy. And that is exactly what it's like to read through these Old Testament prophets in my my. Uh, Old Testament, my prophecy section of my Bible reading right now. I'm reading through the small prophets, sometimes called minor, but they're, they're, they're not so minor. They're, they're small. That's okay. And they are strong and powerful images of the justice of God on the infidelity of the people. For example, the book of Hosea that spent chapter after chapter, 13 chapters, I think, describing the moral failure spiritually of God's people. Or the book that follows it, uh, the book of Joel, describes locusts that are going to come upon the land and all the vivid imagery of, of the land being devoured. And he said, you know why that's happening? I'll tell you why it's happening is because all of the, the wheat and the wine and the oil that should be in my temple, it's not there. I love the story last week that Paul read from 2 Kings 4 and the man who was obedient to God to bring what was honoring to God, not to the bull worship, but to the temple. And the Lord says, my temple's empty. Therefore, I'm going to empty your land. But at the end of these, of these books that do describe the just response to God, there's mercy. He says, return to me. Come to me. Use words and, and humble yourselves and come before me. For my, for my heart is large towards my people. I will forgive you all of your iniquity. And that is ultimately what is resolved in Christ. Do you ever 
I mean, all of the things that these people saw and the way that they got to the mountains and all of the, the, the glories of God that they saw in the material world in their, their circumstances. Do you ever tempted to pray sometimes, Lord, if I, if, I just, if I just saw more, if I could just say, if I could walk through the sea as on dry ground, if I, if I could hit a rock and open it and have water come from it, Lord, if you would hear my prayer about this and, and if you would lift this burden, if you would take this away, I'd believe in you. I'd, I'd, I'd be a good Christian. I'd, I'd follow you forever. See, these people saw more than what we could ever hope and pray or dream to see in all of the calamity and circumstances of our life. And yet, they failed. And so it's a picture not only of, of what the new covenant would do, that would just give us more power to see more and, and to be better with them. And sometimes we read the Old Testament with a bit of, a bit of arrogance and a bit of disdain and think, oh, you silly people. And you open the book of Romans and you see what God what people do instead of giving glory to God who set his glory in the heavens. See, no, there's, there's more required than just more miracles and more power. What's required is a new person. What's required is that we be new creatures. What's required is that the glory of Christ and satisfying that all God requires of him would give us the gift of the Holy Spirit and we would call God our Father with a spirit of adoption. That is what is required. But there is in these stories and through the Old Testament as we anticipate coming into the Christmas season, celebrating that there has been for generations and for centuries a resolution that is still awaiting to be resolved. A tension that has never been solved in any prophet, in any king, in any person through all of the history of the story of God's redemption until over Bethlehem, the shepherds see the sky open and they see the angels descend to say, a king has been born. That is the glory of Christ, that God never loves at the expense of his justice, nor does he ever deliver justice at the expense of his love. And so when will it ever end? When will the cycle ever end? And that is the, the glory of Christ, to deliver Exactly that. Who can forgive sins? God alone. Who can bear justly the weight of God's displeasure? Those who sin. People. <laughs> and so God was born a man. A sinless man. But nevertheless, identifying with us as a man. To bear all that God requires of justice. And delivering to us all of God's mercy. Praise the Lord. The song that we used to sing was called, To God Be the Glory. To God be the glory, great things He has done. So loved He the world that He gave us His Son, who yielded His life and atonement for sin, and opened the life gate that all may go in. Do you remember that song? Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the earth hear his voice. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the people rejoice. Come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give him the glory, great things he has done.